What's amazing is the movie's three, free, but so is the greatest gift, right? It's also free. What is this? It's a monkey. Okay, well, that reminded me as, as uh, Dan was praying, as I meant to mention this, is as I watched some of you struggle to find seats this morning, is that our balcony is underway and will be completed in the near future. And uh, so there will be more space opening up here uh, soon. Um, so thankful for that, and that will also enable us to all, uh, have maybe the kids come back and join us for worship as well, which is very, very important. Amen? So again, I just want to express publicly, because this is part of revival, is learning to speak grace and build people up. And I want to thank Rod publicly once again for his love for this church by serving it, by volunteering his time and efforts and energy to serve you. Amen? So... Okay, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, because you need them, uh, go ahead and grab them, turn them on, head on over to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 10 today, and we're going to be camping out between verses 22 and 25 as we continue our series on revival, more specifically, personal revival. And I want to say that this sermon is probably one of the most important ones next to prayer. Because committing to dwell in community is far more than you just sitting in these chairs. It's you speaking words of grace to each other. It's you edifying each other. It's you pushing the word of God upon each other in a way that builds each other up and not breaks each other down. It's by being a thermostat. Right? What do I mean by that? By when somebody rubs you the wrong way, you set the temperature. You don't need to respond negatively. You don't need to be a thermometer, right? You don't have to respond to the rising temperatures around you or the dropping temperatures. You set your own temperature. And that's part of dwelling in community, is that we learn to build each other up, that we bear each other's sins, that we bear with one another and not just write each other off. Amen? Come on, amen? This is part of dwelling in community. So today we're going to focus on our role of seeking the Lord in the context of community and more specifically the local church. And I can only talk about this local church because this is the local church that I'm a part of. So Hebrews 10, 22 to 25 says, helps if I'm in the right spot in my Bible. says in verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love in good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So we're talking about community and the fact that we need community is important. It's vital to the Christian life and actually it's vital just to life in general. Most people will agree with that fact that community is important. It doesn't matter if you are the an extremely introverted person, you still need a bit of community. We know that we all need community and that we are designed for community. Some like me just need, need more community and others just need one or two people and they're fine. But 
But at the end of the day, you need community to thrive in your Christian life. And we know that the humankind's desire for uh, community is much deeper than just wanting to be around people. Because let's just face it, people are annoying, right? So it's much more than just being around people. Because if that was was all it was, a lot of us wouldn't want to do that. But community is much deeper than that. Theologically, the Lord has wired us to thrive and live in community. It started in the very beginning with Adam, right? God looked at Adam, and what did he say? There we go. It is not good for man to be alone. When did he say that? Before the fall or after the fall? Before the fall. Interesting. God made everything. He made mankind, and then he said, wait a minute, something's missing. He needs community. Even God himself dwells in eternal community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, three, uh, uh, three in one. And we as humans are made in the image of the triune God. So what does that mean? It means we are also made for community. And as Christians, we understand that we gather together in local churches and and be involved in each other's lives, but it's not enough just to be a part of a community. It's not enough just to sit here because you can be a part of a community but not participate in the community, right? There are many who treat the church this way. Like, Like you can be a member of a church or be part of a church, but if you're not participating in the church, but rather just coming and consuming all the time, you're not truly going to benefit from the church the way that Christ has intended you to benefit. There are seasons where you just need to sit and consume. You know, maybe you had a sledding accident, that's all you can do, right? So, I'm just kidding. It's so good to see you, Bev. I had to work it in there. So good to have Bev back in our family, amen? So, <laughs> there are times when you just have to sit back and consume for whatever reason, but that can't be all of your Christian life, all of your part of this community. You must participate because when you participate, you will have all the benefit from the local church that Christ has required you to have. And being part of the community is one thing, but playing your part of the community is what will make the difference. So in the passage, we're going to see some simple principles, but before those, I want to give you the big idea of the sermon, which is revival is best experienced and maintained in gospel community. In short, you're not going to experience revival outside of the church. Now let me explain that. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be in a church service or a member of a particular church, like you're only going to experience revival if you're at a Baptist church. No, that's not what I'm saying. What it means is when God is doing the work of revival in somebody's life, in an individual's life, in a family's life, whatever it may be, he does it in connection with other believers who are together in community. In our passage, there are three exhortations we see, three commands, and they are, that we are to draw near, we are to hold fast, and we are to stir up. And that's how we're going to flesh out this service. That's it. Draw near, hold fast, and stir up. And these are three means by which we pursue together in community and even experience together in community revival. So let's look at the first one, which is draw near. In verse 22 of our text today, it says... 
Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So first of all, what does it start off with? It says, let us. Right? It does, this is an individual talk here. It's not just, just me and Jesus and Jesus in my jam and I don't care about anyone else. It's just all about me and Jesus. No, this is community talk. This is talk about a whole congregation. It's helpful to understand about the book of Hebrews is that Hebrews is not like all the other epistles. Hebrews is actually commonly believed to be a sermon that was preached in front of a congregation, just like I am preaching to you today. And that's a helpful picture to have in your mind as you read this command let us let us fellowship baptist church draw near to god amen let us do it that's what the preacher is saying here the author of hebrews is saying this is a communal responsibility to draw near to god church we have a communal responsibility to draw near to god and the idea of drawing near to god is pretty understandable Right? We know what it means to draw near. It means to get close, to be close in proximity. But in Scripture, it adds something. In Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we see a few ways. Uh, in the Old Testament, people would draw near to fight. People would draw near to wage war, to battle. We read about people drawing near to death and people drawing near to a city to find rest. And I highlight that. Because drawing near in a biblical understanding is more than just being close to something in proximity, but it also means you're drawing near to experience something, right? Like you're not just getting as close as you can with your popcorn and watching a battle, right? It means you're drawing near so that your sword will come out and clash with somebody else's sword. You're going to experience the fight. That's what it means to biblically draw near. So drawing near is an experiential closeness. It's an experiential closeness. We're supposed to draw near to God. And drawing near to God is an experiential closeness. What theologians have long called communion with God. And it's the experience of uh, the peaceful relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. You who are sitting here today who are believers in Christ, your sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. And because of his work on the cross and because of his resurrection, not only though are your sins forgiven, the Bible says you have received the free gift of his righteousness. And because of his righteousness, we now have peace with God. And because of our peace with God, guess what? We can now draw near to God. The Bible said before we were enemies of God before Christ. The only reason you were drawing near to God before was to battle him to fight him. And guess what? You're sitting in these chairs because you lost. (laughs) He saved you. We can actually have the experience of communion with God because there is no more barrier in the way. Amen? Our guilt, the guilt that you feel, the shame that you carry, it's been removed. Let it go. So there are two ways we read about drawing near in Scripture as it relates to God, not to cities or battles, but as it relates to God. There is one... God drawing near to us, and that can both be good or bad, right? And I'll flush that out in a moment. And then us drawing near to God. So God drawing near to us, in, the, in biblical terms, can sometimes be judgment. God draws near to judge. The nearness of God is not always a good thing for everyone. It depends on where you are, what you believe, what you're doing. But for the people of God, hear this, on this side of the cross... 
the nearness of God is always your good. It's always your good. That's what we read. So let me give you two verses to help you see this, how it works out in a positive sense, both us drawing near to God and God drawing near to us. So Psalm 69, 18 says, Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemy. Here the psalmist is pleading with God to draw near and to do what only God can do that he can't do on his own, to help him, to save him, to revive him. And that's what a lot of us are praying. God, would you not revive me? Do something that I can't do on my own in my weakened state. Because you can't cause revival to come. We need God to do it. So God, revive me. Do something like you're doing for this psalmist that he can't do in his weakened state. Do that for us. But then there is the flip side, and it's our drawing near to God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence, underline that if you do that in your Bible, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let us draw near to God, because God sits on a throne of grace. You see, because of Jesus... You do not approach him sitting on a throne of judgment. You can approach him, a God, a king, who is sitting on a throne of grace. We can boldly, confidently, but humbly approach him. And guess what? He always receives us. He always communes with us. You're not annoying to God. You're not annoying to God. He loves when you come into his presence. Now, what does this have to do with revival? Why are we talking about drawing near to God as it relates to community in a series on revival? And we're doing so because revival is essentially the visitation of God in a manifest way. It's the nearness of God. It's the closeness of God. It's the experiential closeness of God. God is everywhere all at once. We believe this. We confess this, that he is omnipresent. We know that. But then there is also this thing called the cultivated presence of God that is possible with God that comes through faith in Jesus and through community as believers. Revival is the nearness of God. It is the visitation of God with his people. That's how many people have explained revival in history past, that it's the nearness of God. They can't explain it. He's everywhere. He's in the fields. He's in the stores. It's like he's just present there. And for the believers, it's, it's hurtful, but in a good way that it spurs you on. For the unbelievers, they're running to the church because they're so convicted, and God saves them. He's everywhere. But how we have defined revival in this series, we have been using a definition from Richard Owen Roberts in his book on revival. And he said that revival is the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. So by that definition, again, we see that revival is, guess what, God's work, not our work. And it's extraordinary, not because, uh, because the work that the Spirit is doing is weird, different, or new. Rather, it's the same work that the Holy Spirit always does on an accelerated level. Right? It, it's commonly called the ordinary means of grace that produce extraordinary results. It's the visitation, it's the communion with God that is intense. You see, camping is not the only thing that's intense. Thank you. Now, if our longing is for revival, if our longing is for our hearts to be stirred, 
for our spirit to be connected to God in such a way that we're becoming more like Jesus, to have this punctuated sanctification, if you will, we must recognize that our longing for God to do this work in our lives does not take away our responsibility to do our part. And our part is drawing near to God. Look at James 4.8. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then there's a really good COVID passage. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. <laughs> it's the same principle here as ask, seek, and knock. Jesus says if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, the door will be opened. And then what does Jesus say? He says, how much will uh, God more give his children who ask the Holy Spirit? He's not going to give you a rock, a stone, or a snake. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's not going to keep that from you if you ask for it. In revival, when we seek this, this is what we're looking for. We are pleading with God to revive us. And we're going to seek God for this by drawing near to God. Not drawing near to revival, because that will turn us into people who are enslaved to trying to make something happen. But we're drawing near to God. And if revival comes, so be it. If not, hey, at least you're closer to God. Amen? So how do you draw near? What does it mean in a practical sense to draw near to God? How do we get, uh, how do, how do we get this into our DNA of drawing near to God? And we get a little bit of an explanation here in our Hebrew verse. If we look back at verse 22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So a true heart indicates that this is fundamentally an internal exercise, not an external exercise. It's something that happens internally that will, in a, it, without a doubt, affect the external, but it starts internally. In other words, you can draw near to God or you cannot draw near to God. And what's sad for many unbelievers and outsiders and for many believers, it's hard to tell the difference. So just because you can read your Bible... Just because you can quote your scripture or preach on a Sunday morning does not necessarily mean you're drawing near to God. Now, if you're drawing near to God, you're going to do some of those things. They're going to come naturally. But if you're not, uh, if you're not doing those things without, sorry, if you're doing those things without faith, you're doing them in vain. And you're not drawing near to God. You're just putting on an act. A true heart means that the drawing near to God is fundamentally internal and sincere. It comes from a place of faith that you're not just faking it. You're not just being a parrot. Now, your faith may be weak. I want to I relieve some burden here. Your faith may be weak. Your faith may be small. See, the point in the Bible is never how strong your faith is. Right? I, I come from a lot of baggage in this. You just need to have more faith, brother. That's the worst thing you can say to someone. It doesn't matter how big your faith is. Your faith might be small. It might be little. But Jesus never makes that the point. Even if faith is tiny, small, it seems insignificant, that faith is enough. That faith is enough to move mountains if it's real faith. Come on, let's get excited about that. That relieves a burden off of our shoulders to try to be a slave to have more faith when faith is a gift given to us by God and each of us are given a different measure. What matters is the, the, the type of faith, not, not the size of faith, it's the nature of faith, that it's true faith, not, not false faith. 
It's the nature of faith, not the size of faith that matters. What matters is if your faith is real. So do you have doubts? Or maybe some of your thoughts corrupted in your beliefs? Do you vacillate? Do you wander? Sure. But at the end of the day, do you believe? Do you believe, be it strong or not? Do you believe? We've all been there. God, I don't know how you're going to work this out. I don't even really know. I don't even know if I really believe you can work this out. But God, I'm trusting that you will. That's faith. You know how small a mustard seed is? Minuscule. It's the nature of your faith that matters. So this drawing near to God, we draw near with this internal, sincere heart by faith. It's not a mere external conformity to the ways of God. We're good at that as a church. We're good at cleaning ourselves up and making ourselves look Christian. But it's what's internal that matters. What did Jesus say, right? You can spray perfume all over the coffin all you want. But inside, it's still dead. Secondly, we are told we not only draw near with a sincere heart, but with full assurance of the faith. Why can I draw near to God? Because my heart is sprinkled clean. Because I have been cleansed by the washing of the water. You see, you draw near with full assurance means I no longer trust in myself. My hope is no longer placed, my confidence is no longer placed in me, but placed in Jesus. That's what opens doors in your life. That's what makes the connection. That's what makes you whole. Not me, not you. I draw near with a true heart. We draw near with a true heart, full of assurance, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The picture here of our hearts being sprinkled clean is that of an Old Testament sacrificial system where the high priest would go out, he would get the spotless lamb, he would slaughter the spotless lamb, he would take the blood of that lamb, he would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, indicating that God's wrath has been appeased or satisfied. There's no more judgment left for that year for the people because it has been taken out on the sacrifice. But it didn't stop there. The people, Leviticus goes on to tell us, that the people would be sprinkled with blood as well. That that same blood from the perfect lamb would be sprinkled on the people on their face, on their faces, on their shoulders. Everyone awake? On their shoulders. And this would be an indication that they have been cleansed, that the sacrifice was accepted and they have now been cleansed of their sins. It was symbolic. And now Jesus is the greater sacrifice. He is the priest as well and the sacrifice, and we are spiritually sprinkled by his blood. Spiritually, our consciences are cleansed from the evilness. And this is why many people don't seek God, because they get this confused. They get the nature of salvation confused. They get confused about the grace and the gospel. How many times have you struggled with these thoughts yourself? I know I have. Things like, I want to read my Bible. I want to pray more. I want to go to church. I I know I need to do these, but I have screwed up so bad this week that I should probably just wait a little bit. I feel so guilty. I'm weighed down by guilt, and I can't do those things yet because I'd be hypocritical. I need to fix my life up a little bit so my conscience can feel better. Then I can go back to serving. Then I can go back to reading my Bible. Then I can go back to praying. Because if I draw near to God right now with how I feel under the weight of my guilt, it will destroy me. But what you need, church, is a conscience that is sprinkled clean, not a conscience that is toughened up. 
You see, what happens is that we think that I, can, I, that I can really draw near to, I can't really draw near to God now. First, what I need to do is get my life in order. I need to go a few days maybe without screwing up and what I did. And once I get a few days under my belt, then I'm good to draw near to God. But what does that make you? That makes you a hardworking unbeliever in a practical sense. Because with that mindset, you're no longer trusting or believing in the finished work of Jesus to make you acceptable. You're rather trusting in your own efforts to make you more acceptable. Now I can draw near to God because I have done my best. And I have made myself presentable. And what you've ultimately done is you have hardened your conscience towards the Lord. You have trained your conscience to feel better based on your efforts rather than just receiving and living within the forgiveness that comes in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. Amen? You see, the Christian is cleansed by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. And when we know this, when this becomes true, when we believe this by faith, our hearts have been sprinkled clean. We then draw near without fear of judgment, without fear of being destroyed. In fact, the Bible compels us to draw near. Don't run from God when you mess up. Don't run from God when you fall back into that sin. Run to him. You don't surprise God. He doesn't go, Aaron, man, like three times? You're an idiot. I regret saving you. No, he says, I know. That's why I had to die for you. Don't run from God. Run to him, church. Draw near. We need to draw near with a heart, with our hearts sprinkled clean and with our bodies washed by pure water. Did you see that? Our bodies washed by pure water. A lot of people read that and they connect right away to baptism. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This is not what the author was intending. The washing of the water is actually a spiritual metaphor for cleansing of the whole person by the work of the Holy Spirit at salvation. Now, of course, baptism depicts this, and it becomes a part of this by analogy and sacrament, but he is not specifically talking about baptism here. He is talking about a spiritual cleansing that comes from the washing of the word and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We have been sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are washed by the Spirit of our God. It's amazing. It's a spiritual cleansing that comes from the Holy Spirit. He's cleaning house. He's removing the junk. This is how we can draw near to God. Because he's removed the barrier. Because we have real faith. Maybe not big faith, but we have real faith that trusts in a real Savior who has cleaned our consciences and made us holy and acceptable to God. So what can we do So what we can do because of this is we can then cultivate a closeness with God that is not based upon your performance, but is based upon Christ's performance. But you might be asking, how do I draw near? I understand theologically now that I can draw near because of Christ, but how do I do that? Well, you draw near to Christ by and through the means of grace that we've been talking about in meditation. And now before you get freaked out by the word meditation, that is a very Christian principle that we should practice. Meditating upon God's word and his truth. This is not just emptying your mind. Right? This is true uh, work of meditating upon God's word so it transforms you. The means of grace, I've talked about this in almost every sermon in this series, but uh, but the means of grace are those things that God has given us to convey grace as we receive 
receive them by faith, things like just ordinary means, the word of God, the ministry of the word, prayer, Christian fellowship, the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper, and of course, corporate worship where everything comes together under one roof. Those are the means of grace, and there will be no revival without those things. You cannot experience revival, you cannot expect it to happen personally in your life if you are neglecting the means of grace. But it's not just that those things are isolated from your life, from the rest of your life. Meditation then becomes the link that takes those means of grace and allows those means to be constantly intersecting with every part of your life whether it be recreational, vocational, or just enjoying God's good gifts that he has given you like food and drink. Meaning we look at all things in our life, our jobs, our hobbies, what we eat, all the things that we do are designed to bring glory to God, to enjoy God and his goodness. And you can draw near to God in all those things of your life by making that small connection. It's realizing that worship is not just singing four songs on Sunday morning but it's the food that you eat. It's the laughter that you share. It's the tears that will stream down your face. All things in life are moments of worship, or they can be. It's not that you stop in the middle of all your situations, like you're at McDonald's and you raise your hand, Lord, thank you so much for this Big Mac, you know, and you just start singing, you know, the goodness of God right there in the middle of, no, that's not what I'm talking about, because singing is not the only way that we can worship. But it's that all things in your life move you to a genuine thankfulness to God. For example, I love coffee. But I don't just love coffee. Like, I love the process of making coffee. I make pour-overs. I grind all my beans. I test out different consistencies. I test out different origins to have different flavors and tastes to extract all I can from the goodness of that dark little bean that I love so much. And, and then I love, I use this as a time of worship because I make two connections. That God has gifted me and wired me to love coffee. And I thank him for that. Thank you, Lord. That's why Hebrews is in the Bible. Okay? And then, <laughs> and then also, I also make the connection that God was the reason that coffee tastes so good. And if you don't like coffee, well, I, I better be praying for you, okay? But you can be doing the same thing with all of your loves, all of the things that you do in your life, and even the things that you don't love. So meditation is the specific application of the word of God and truth of God in every area of our lives as you go through your day, and it becomes a means by which you draw near to God. We draw near. We pursue communion with God, an ongoing experiential closeness with God throughout the day. And that's part of seeking revival. Secondly, um, we have hold fast. In Hebrews 10.23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And the emphasis is there. Now, what does hold fast mean? On one level, it's easy to deduce what the meaning, what the command means by just hearing it. It means to hold on to something, to hold tight. The idea of persevering in the midst of trouble, in the midst of the storms of life. But here, Paul says, hold fast in the context of our confession, which means persevering in our faith without wavering, not letting go. You see this in all the pirate movies or old sailing movies, right? When they hit a storm, when they hit a headwind, everyone's yelling, hold fast! And one reason is the command is so everyone holds on to something, doesn't get tossed out of the ship, but also it's a command to the captain. He's got to hold the wheel fast, 
because the wind and the waves are trying to take the boat off course, and he has to hold it to stay the course that they were set on. So we must also hold fast to stay the course, to trust God and the person of Jesus Christ. That is our confession. We hold fast to Christ. For example, if we just look back at Hebrews 4 again, and let's look at verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's our great hope, church, that we hold fast to Jesus in the midst of difficulty. And this holding fast essentially requires something that most people are not comfortable admitting. And I think most evangelicals, most church-going people are not ready to embrace this next idea or put this work in. And it's this simple truth, is that if you're going to hold fast to Jesus, it demands that you have a growing, detailed theology. Not that your theology is as big as mine or somebody else's, but that yours is growing. And I'm going to talk about this more in depth as we close this series off next week. And I have a better definition for theology. I just don't want to give it away yet. But for now, we'll just define it as the study of God. And then I'm going to make fun of myself for calling it that next week. So uh, it's the study of God. Simply, at the end of the day, that's what it means. It means God words, right? So you can't hold fast to Jesus without the study of God, without theology. Now, you can do theology without holding fast to Jesus, but you cannot hold fast to Jesus without doing theology because it is the details of how you do it, of how you have relationship with Christ. People do theology wrong all the time. I know this firsthand because I did it wrong for so long. And it wasn't even that all my doctrine was wrong, all my teaching was wrong. It's that I disconnected theology from piety. I disconnected theology from the life of faith. I disconnected theology from my responsibility to draw near to God and maintaining communion with him. It requires theology. You must know this Christ who has revealed himself in his word. You must understand who he is, what he has done, what his words mean, what his work has accomplished. That's all theology. Don't get scared by that word. It's simple basics of your relationship with Christ. So the encouragement here is actually a point of theology as well. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because why? Why can we hold fast? Because he who promises is faithful. We wouldn't know that without the study of God. So the encouragement here is a point of theology. We hold fast. In other words, we hold fast to our confession because Jesus, because God is faithful, because he is holding fast to you. You're not saved because how tightly you hold to Jesus. You're saved because how tightly he holds to you. God is faithful to you because of Christ, not because you've done anything to deserve it. And it's not that he's faithful to just you, but he's also faithful to the promises that he's made to you and about you. And we wouldn't know those without studying God's word. Promises to forgive your sins because you have confessed Christ. Promises to conform you to the image of his son progressively as you grow in grace. Promises to raise you up on the last day with a body that no longer has pain, that no longer ails, that no longer fails 
These are promises that we hold on to with expectation. They're, they're a part of our life, and they're just a sampling that, that I just used, or just a sampling of God's promises that he has made to you in Christ Jesus. There are so many. And so God tells us his promises, he, that he will punish every evil deed so we don't have to go and get vengeance. He will bring about salvation. He will bring about justice. And we are holding fast amidst of the difficulties of life, amidst the friction and the resistance that we face because we have the encouragement that God is faithful. That God is faithful. Not that Aaron's faithful, but that God is faithful to his promises. We need that when we're tempted to give up. And a lot of us are tempted to give up at different points in our walks with Christ. We're tempted to give in. We're tempted to throw in the towel, to say we're done, that we can't do it anymore for whatever reason. Maybe you've been burned by bad churches. Maybe you've been hurt by the leaders of those churches. Maybe you've been burned by your own circumstances. It wasn't your fault. Things just happened. But you got worn down to a point that you just feel like you have nothing left. And you want to give up entirely. Maybe you just feel like giving up because it is actually your fault. You made a mistake. You messed things up so bad. You can't see a way out. And instead of trying to stay and deal with it, you run. And I stand here today to encourage you, church, to hold fast if that's you. Because God is faithful. Even when you are not, God is. He is faithful to the promises that he has made about you. It's okay to personalize that. You want revival? You want the things, you want God to do the thing in your life? Then you need to draw near to God by holding fast to Christ because he is faithful to you. And this is absolutely critical as we are constantly stirring each other up, which is my final point. And, it's, and we see this in Hebrews 10, 24, which says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Do you know what that word means to stir up? Like if you go back to the Greek and you work out the definition, it, it actually comes out to mean to provoke. It means to incite, to push somebody's buttons. Like if you come to the offices during the week, I'm always pushing Tyler's buttons. I'm trying to invoke a reaction from him. He just won't give it to me. No, but, but what this is talking about is not in a negative worldly way, like we like to incite people, provoke people. This is talking about a provocation or an incitement unto godliness to stir up one another, to provoke, to stimulate a person in such a way that they respond the right way. And here in our text, the right way to respond is love and good works. So this is saying, I'm going to push the right buttons, I'm going to put in the right combination so that I will cause this individual to respond, not in frustration or anger, or, and you're doing it wrong, but with love and good works. That is stirring up. That is stirring someone up to godliness, stirring up someone to love and good deeds. So it's an affection. It's more than just an emotion. Something deeper than emotion, it's an affection that moves you to love and to good works in Christ. So we are to stir one another up in two basic ways, both internally and externally. The provocation that we are seeking to enlist from our peers, from our family, that, that would be different, that they would be different on the inside 
and behave differently on the outside. Not mere external conformity, but a behavior that is detailed by true transformation in their life. And notice this, that these are not directed internally to ourselves, but the stirring up that we are called to do in each other's lives is stirring up each other, stirring up your friends. So they will act externally and act more outwardly, loving God, loving doing good works. That's what stirring up is supposed to do and experience and seek. Love and good deeds. Now what does it mean to act? No, no, sorry. Now what this means is that we actually have to care about one another. We should actually care about the community that we're a part of. You should care about the people who are sitting in this room. Not just show up and expect everyone to bow down to what you want, to serve you, to push your agenda. But you should care about halting and surrendering and calling people up. But also surrendering your preferences as well when needed. It's, it's about caring. If you want to experience what you're supposed to experience in the community of Fellowship Baptist Church, then you have to put in the work as well. We care about one another, which means we care about our belief and we care about our behavior. So we are seeking to stir up one another. Then what we're saying is that what I want for you is a better, stronger, more biblical belief and behavior for your life. I'm talking about the right kind of confession, but I also want you to have a strong character. Because if your confession's orthodox, but your character is weak, then you're nothing more than an annoying gong. You're a clashing symbol. You can have all the right belief, but if your character is garbage, you're just annoying. So I don't just want to say I don't just want you to say the right things. I don't just want you to be a parrot, but on the flip side, I also don't just want you to do the right things and be a morally upright person who's far from God. I want you, church, to have a heart. I want this for me and for you to have a heart that believes the truth, and I want you to have a life that reflects that truth that you believe. That's what we want for one another. So what this means is if we want that for one another here at FBC, then we must put in the work to stir one another up, to provoke one another, to incite one another so that the response is coming out of us that is love and good works. Doesn't that sound like revival? Greater love, greater works, God's church doing what we're supposed to do. We spend way too much time on, oh God, stir me up, stir me up. I'm so cold. But what we need to stop leaving it to that, just that prayer. It's like telling God I'm starving and we have all this food sitting in front of you and you want him to also lift the fork into your mouth. What, it mean, what, what I mean is, yes, please pray that God would stir your heart, that he would stir one another up. But then also we need to start doing that as well. We need to start stirring each other up And we will start seeing the things that happen in the Bible happen here in our church. We need to draw near to God because the promise is when we draw near to God, he will what? Draw near to us. Ask, seek, ask, knock. He will respond. Ask and he will give you the Holy Spirit. We are supposed to be stirring one another up. And I love verse 14 because it says, uh, consider, let us consider how to stir one another up. In other words, it's not a three-step program that you can just pigeonhole every church through. He says you actually have to think about this. Think about the context you're in, about the people who you sit next to. How am I going to stir up my brothers and sisters that are close to me so they have a greater love for God and for others in a life of godliness? How can we do it? 
And I don't think there's one simple, neat way, but I do think you can think about it in terms of ingredients. And there are six very basic ingredients of stirring one another up as I close. And I'm going to walk through them quickly. The six basic ingredients are scripture, relationship, words, commitment, church, and effort. The first ingredient for stirring one another up is scripture. You want to stir up somebody, you want to provoke them to greater love and good deeds, then you must use Scripture. You have to use the truth of God. Whether it's implicitly given or explicitly given, there will be no stirring up in a true biblical sense apart from Scripture. You can stir the pot other ways, but there won't be true biblical stirring up. Because that's what God uses. He uses the Word of God to penetrate the heart and soul to bring about change. If you want to see people you care about grow spiritually, you have to invest yourself in scripture and make sure you are available and able to give it to them. Number two, you must have relationships mixed in here because it's a little hard to give someone truth if you don't know what they need to hear. If you're just kind of guessing and throwing some darts and hoping they land on the wrong spot, you're probably causing more harm than good. I'm not saying you have to be besties with everybody in this church, but what I am saying is that you, in your life, in this church, in your circle, that you have people that are close to you, that you can stir up and they can stir you up. And you need to begin to develop these relationships so that they allow for transparency, honesty, and accountability, so that you can begin to interact with them mutually so that there is mutual benefit. If there is no relationship mixed into this, the mix is going to be off. It's like if you use baking soda instead of baking powder. Oh, yeah, something's wrong. Okay, a little salty. Words. You will have to articulate things. Push the things out of your mouth. Don't just keep them in your brain. Maybe you have to use a piece of paper, write them out, send an email. If you have to, send a text message. I don't know, each their own. Whether, whatever it might be, you have to articulate these spiritual truths to others. So it's more than just sharing scripture with them, but what you really need to do is know the truth of that scripture and invest that truth in a very real, tangible way. You have to take initiative and, I, and, 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 and say things to them and speak to them. I don't know, uh, I know some of the pushback might be, well, I'm nervous about this. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to talk about the things of God. And I just want to pause and say, hey, I, I, I love the hesitancy and carefulness because that's good. I want to encourage hesitancy and, and carefulness at times. Don't just jump into situations, start shooting off Bible verses like you're John Wayne, okay? Uh, but take your time. Be patient. Pray through it. But then be bold and courage, cur, cur, uh, courageous when the time comes and say what needs to be said as you thought it through with much prayer. There are way too many warriors for Christ on the internet and within our churches that are doing more damage than good. So let's just take our time. Let's get to know each other. Let's pray for each other. And then let's stir each other up. We have to take the initiative to use our words in relationships that are grounded in biblical truth. And then fourthly, we have commitment. The relationships you have in community that you belong to takes commitment. You have to be committed to helping that person, trusting that they're committed to helping you. That means you're willing to say the hard truths when it needs to be said. And you're willing to hear the hard truths about yourself when they need to be said. Fifth is church. Number two and five are not the same thing, church and relationship, uh, uh, because church is the context in which the relationship takes place. And by church, I don't just mean gathering on Sunday. What I mean is the covenant community of God's people who love Christ and confess the gospel and are committed to one another. Committed to one another. That's the context in which you find the best relationships that bear fruit. 
And then six is efforts. It's hard work. It's not easy talking with people and being honest with people, being transparent with people, making time for people. Having friendships and living this way will cost you. People hurt people. It happens. So these are the six ingredients that get mixed in. And these six ingredients allow for the stirring up of one another. And it's important because we all face ongoing pressures and the danger to distance ourselves from gospel community that God has given us. Even verse 25 gives us that warning to not neglect the gathering to meet together, which is the habit of some. Right, But we should encourage each other to meet as we see the day drawing near. So don't forsake the gathering together. But instead, encourage one another. Don't neglect to meet. This doesn't mean that you can't miss a church service or two. I'm not up here taking attendance and I'm going to call you up and put you on church discipline because you missed a Sunday or anything. If you miss a few, I might call you and make sure you're still alive and everything's okay. But I'm not calling to reprimand you. Because what scripture is talking about, the forsaking of the assembly is not just missing a few gatherings here and there. Rather, it's this more dangerous idea of this progressive distancing of ourselves from the community that God has called us to be a part of. And it tends to happen in small steps. Oh, I'll just watch online. Oh, I might just do this. And soon enough, you fade away. Your life begins to move away from the congregation, from the community that God has called you to be a part of. And we've all been there at times. We've all faced this temptation. And when it happens, we're in real trouble. Not forsaking the church in our relationship is avoid it when we are pressing into community, even when it's hard, into the relationships to stir one another up in a tangible way. That's why we have life groups, and I encourage you so often to get into them. That's why, we, that's why Donna leads prayer ministry on Monday, because we want room for community. That's why Agnes is making more opportunity for the 55-plus to meet. That's why Chantel is starting a Bible study in the women's and led if gathering. That's why Solo is starting men's breakfasts, and we're looking at the Word. That's why Gloria strives to put on these big dinners and fellowship times, so we're making as much room as possible to have community with one another. Amen? Amen? And I encourage you to invest into all those avenues because revival happens in the context of gospel communities. So let's commit together today, church, to dwelling in the community that God has called you to be a part of here at Fellowship Baptist Church because I can confidently say, hear this, I can confidently say that God is at work in this community. Do you believe that? God is at work in this community, in this gathering. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you that you are a good God. And Father, we thank you for your word, that it shows us detail about how we can commune and love you, Father, through the presence of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. Father, we thank you, God, that you have not hidden yourself from us, but you've revealed yourself to us. And God, you have called us to these hard truths that are not easily lived out all the time, Father, to dwell in community. And dwelling in community, Lord, sometimes hurts us, sometimes it benefits us, sometimes it gets a little boring, and sometimes it's excitement. But I pray that in all those seasons, Lord, we would be pressing in all the more into, in the community that God has called us to be. Father, we thank you for the blessing that you have put upon our church here in Drumheller. And Father, we do ask that you would continue to bless us in this manner, to extend your kingdom to the community that is out there so that they might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.